Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series called One, in which we are rediscovering the heart of God and learning that joining Jesus' mission means sharing his heart for the one. I want to talk to you today about the parable of the prodigal son. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 15. And we're just going to look at the first part of the parable of the prodigal son today. It's found in Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. And we're going to look at these verses together. And the reason why is because this is part of a series we're in right now called One, where we are rediscovering uh, God's heart for the one and God's the heart of God. And so if you haven't been with us, we've been looking at several passages like John 3:16. We looked at the first two verses of Luke 15 where we saw that the religious leaders were totally put off when tax collectors and sinners were starting to gather around Jesus and listen to him. He couldn't understand. They couldn't understand why he would want to spend time with them and we saw that they had heart trouble according to Jesus. And then Jesus told three parables back to back to back. One about the lost sheep, one about the lost coin, and one about the lost son. And as he told these parables, we've been unpacking them. We saw the common themes, the threads that were part of these last week. Today, I just want to focus on the first part of this famous parable. And one of the things that I want to just ask you to think with me is, how is it possible for us to read the scripture and not be moved by it? What, what is it? How can, how can some people actually experience God's love and other people never experience it? It's not that they're not interested in that, but that there seems to be a gap. And so here's what I want to share with you today, if you're following along as we start this message, is that rediscovering God's heart means seeing your story in Jesus' story. Rediscovering God's heart, if you're really going to know God's heart, then you've got to be able to see your story, how your life fits in to Jesus' story, this story that Jesus tells. And um, I think I shared uh, some of this with you last week, but here's a little bit more of just an edited part of what I shared with you last week about Jesus telling stories. As people heard Jesus tell these stories, Eugene Peterson writes, they relaxed their defenses. They walked away perplexed, wondering what they meant. The stories lodged in their imagination, and then like a time bomb, they would explode in their unprotected hearts. He was talking about God. They had been invaded. There's something about a story that can do an end around on us. Just because it draws us in, we can begin to see. And as we begin sometimes to see ourselves in the story or in the characters of the story, I've seen over the years in my own life, maybe you have too, it can change your life. You, you actually begin to see yourself as part of something bigger than yourself. And so today I want to talk to you about Jesus' famous story. And before we start, would you mind praying with me that he'll just meet us in this time? Now, Lord, some of us have heard this story many times. Some of us, this will be our first time. But I pray that we'll hear you tell this story and that as we're listening, you would meet us in such a way that we see ourselves in your story. We pray, Lord, that you would do it so that our hearts would be moved by your heart for us. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so I want to invite you to read uh, with me here. Um, and uh, what, what I want you to see is that 
We have the younger son in this part of the story. There's also an older son that'll be mentioned. So first of all, when we talk about the parable of the prodigal son, before I start to read, here's, here's what I want you to notice. I would not call it the parable of the prodigal son anymore based on what I've been learning as I've been studying. And I'm not trying to be, you know, snooty. I'm just saying we need to see a couple things. Let me show them to you if you're following along in the notes. First, Jesus' story is about two sons who both need the father's love. So, you know, in some ways, we have to ask ourselves, why is it not the parable of the prodigal sons? But also, what I want you to see is it's not only about two sons, but if you read this parable closely, what you'll notice is it's really about the father. Eight times in these verses we're going to read today, the word father shows up. It's very prominent. If you read the whole parable, 12 times. But so some people have said this should not be called the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, Tim Keller has suggested this should be called the parable of the prodigal God. What do I mean by that? Because some of us go, wait a second, prodigal is not a good word, is it? Prodigal means that you've wandered away and that you need to come home. What is this about? Well, let me explain. Did you know that the word prodigal has come to mean wayward? But actually, that's not its original meaning. So if you're following along, here's what it means. Prodigal means extremely generous, recklessly extravagant, lavish. So what it's meaning here is that the word prodigal actually uh, was used sometimes to describe the way that this young guy took his father's wealth and wastefully gave it away, but not in a generous way. And so it's kind of a twist of this idea of generous. And that's the reason why some people say it's better to say this is the parable about a generous father. And I hope you'll see that in this parable today. So let's read. I'm going to invite you to read verses 11 and 12 with me in that first gray box uh, as we start looking at what this story tells us about the father's heart. Would you join me? There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. I'll go on. It says in verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, if you're following along, what I want you to see, and uh, Warren Wiersbe, uh, in his commentary, really just used three words that I resonated with. So I want to just talk to you about in these kind of three scenes. The first is we see here rebellion. And what do I mean by that? Notice that what happens is, is that the son wants independence and his father's things, but he doesn't want his father. The, father, the son wants independence. He wants to be free of his father. He wants to be free of home. He wants to be free to do whatever he wants to do. And he wants the father's things. How do we know that? In, in the notes there, you notice in the gray box there in the middle sentence there, what does he say? Father, what's the next two words? Give me. It's not like, you know, may I? There's no, it's rather brusque, and it's this whole 
I only care about what I can get out of life. And so we see this spirit rising in him. And what that means is though for years he might have eaten at his father's table and been with his father every day, now he wants none of that. He only wants to know what his father can do for him, not what his father is to him. And as we think about this, now, again, one of the things that I just want to say to us, in the United States, we listen to this story differently than the original hearers. Because sometimes when we think about this, we go, okay, but listen to what N.T. Wright says about this. Let's be sure we've understood how families like this worked. When the father divided the property between the two sons and the younger son turned his share into cash, this must have meant that the land the father owned had been split in two with the younger son selling off his share to someone else. The shame that this would bring on the family would be added to the shame the son had already brought on the father by demanding his share before the father's death. It was equivalent to saying, I wish you were dead. The father bears these two blows without recrimination of shame and insult, but also rejected love. To this day, there are people in traditional cultures like that of Jesus' day who find the story at this point quite incredible. Fathers just don't behave like that. He should, they think, have beaten him or thrown him out without a cent. There is a depth of mystery already built into the story before the son even leaves home. Again, in modern Western culture, children routinely leave homes in the country to pursue their future and their fortune in big cities or even abroad. But in Jesus' culture, this would likewise be seen as shameful with the younger son abandoning his obligation to care for his father in his old age. What was going on here was just unheard of. In fact, when the father agrees to give him his share of his inheritance, when it says he sold his property, that word is bios, life. What the son was asking the father to do was to tear his life apart. And the father does. And the father, instead of hating him for it, still loves him as he sacrificially gives over before he's died, his very inheritance that he was planning to give. This is a fascinating story, and so already the listeners are going, what in the world is going on? Now, if you're following along, notice this, that far from his father, he wastes all he has and lands in a pig pen. Far from his father, he wastes all that he has and lands in a pig pen. Jesus is an unbelievable storyteller. You have to know that it says he went off to a distant country. We already talked about how unique that would have been in this culture. But also, what's interesting is, is that when he is spent all, he's wasted it all. It didn't even take that long for him to waste it all. Then he winds up feeding pigs. Now, I, I think most of us have enough understanding of the Jewish Old Testament laws about pork. The idea of even being near pigs tells us one thing. This is not a Jewish country. Second of all, that being near pigs, you weren't even supposed to touch a pig, let alone feed a pig. This was down, 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 down. He is literally in the mud. And Jesus is telling this story and saying he couldn't have gotten farther away or wrecked his life more foolishly than he had done. And so he wastes all of it. And so in this place of rebellion, he's learning something I've shared with you a number of times over the years, that when you and I want to be in charge of our own lives, 
when we think we can do better than God or we think we're wiser than God, when we think that getting to do whatever I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it is really the ticket to life, we need to understand that that's not the whole story. So here's what I've shared with you over the years. Sin, which is an independent spirit, not just doing wrong things, sin will take you, what, friends, farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. And here's a part I added years ago because I started understanding that it did something else and breaks God's heart more than words can say. This kind of independent spirit has all kinds of potential damage in it. And now this son is living in it. But there, there in the pig pen, there in the mud, something powerful happens, Jesus says. And it's called repentance. And so if you're following along, notice this, is that he comes to his senses and back to his father. He comes to his senses and back to his father. I think we've got verses 17 through 19 here on the screen that we can look at. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And then this one line in verse 20 that basically just says, and he got up. So he got up and went to his father. And what we see here is a picture of repentance, not perfect repentance at all but repentance. What do I mean by that? He began, repentance is always seeing things as they actually are. Repentance is actually starting to go, how could I have been so blind? How could I have been so ungrateful? How could I have, how could I have looked at that so selfishly? What, what is going on? And, and the hardship actually causes him to look at his life from a different angle than he'd been looking at it. He wasn't just seeing it from his own perspective, but he was also remembering something. He was remembering the kindness of his father. He said, man, even back home, the lowest servants in my father's house are at least eating way better than I'm eating. My father even treats those people well. And he begins to remember that. And he goes, and here I am starving. I have, I have, I have, made decisions that have absolutely wrecked my life. What are my options? What are my options? And there, what happens is, is that he begins to think through. He's taken captive by some new thoughts. And if you're following along, here's what you'll see. Recalling his father's kindness leads him to repentance. Recalling his father's kindness leads him to repentance. Some people believe that his repentance leads to his father's kindness. But the truth is, it's the father's kindness that leads him back to repentance. And so none of us can ever boast, even when we have a spirit of repentance where our hearts and our minds soften again, because really what's happened is, is we finally come to our senses about what's really true about God and what's really true about us. And so notice this verse in Romans 2, 4. Maybe you've seen it before. It says, don't you realize how patient he is being with you? Or don't you care? Can't you see that he has been waiting all this time without punishing you 
to give you time to turn from your sin. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And most of us, we think, oh, the way God leads us to repentance is he hammers us one. And there's no question that sometimes hitting a brick wall is sometimes him letting us go, but it's really his kindness that's doing that so that we'll come to our senses. Sometimes some of us are so stubborn, that's the only way we come to our senses, is finally getting our own way and finally realizing just how costly that is. But notice this repentance. This repentance is not only a change of mind, but it leads him to get up and go back, not just home, I love how it says, to his father. To his father. You see, friends, it's about relationship. And there, his relationship is what he is going back to. But put yourself in his shoes. You just absolutely, in a shame and honor culture, a traditional culture like that was, imagine yourself going back. Imagine yourself going, okay, I've got my speech figured out. But like, if he's really mad or he won't listen to me, then I just made a long trip back and I have nowhere to go. And he's probably wondering, well, what is, I know the father's been kind to my servants, but they haven't done something as bad as I've done. And now he's making his way back. So I want to ask you, if you would, to read verse 20 with me in that second gray box, and then I'll finish out the rest of the parable that we're reading today. Would you join me? So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Verse 21, if you're following along. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now notice, he doesn't get the whole speech finished. Did you notice? He didn't get the last sentence done. Why? Because the father interrupts him. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, which was probably his own. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And if you're following along, notice this, that rebellion and repentance ultimately leads to rejoicing when his father doesn't treat him as he deserves when his father doesn't treat him as he deserves. Now think about this, because again, we don't fully appreciate this in the Western culture, but in the Eastern culture, when people were listening to this story, they already would have been surprised that the father had not beaten his son and kicked him out on his, you know, uh, keister and then with no money. But instead, he sends him off. Now when he comes back, this is another whole shocking thing. You need to know that children might have run in the Middle Eastern culture. Women might have run in the Middle Eastern culture. And maybe even young men might have run in the East, in Middle Eastern culture. Older men, the patriarchs of the family, never ran. Because it would mean hiking up their robes and running in a way that would have been completely undignified. But the father isn't thinking about being dignified. The father is not sitting on his porch and saying, this better be good. The father sees him from a long way off. Remember we talked about how it demands an all-out search. 
with people, you can't force them to come home, but you can wait for them to come home. And when they do, your reception is up to you. But the father makes up his mind. And when he sees him from a distance, he doesn't make him crawl to the father. The father runs to him. And then it says he hugs him and kisses him all over. Can you imagine just kissing him all over his head? And the Bible says is, is that it's in a tense. That means he kisses him and keeps on kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. What must that have felt like? And really what the son thought he would do is, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so I'll work my way back into at least respectability with you. And the father says, that's not how we're doing it. Bring my best robe. Bring the ring. Bring the sandals. Servants didn't wear sandals. Only the family did. What he's saying is, you are my son still. I forgive you. I receive you. Okay? And it's just amazing. And again, the Middle Eastern culture would have said, what? Because most of us think that in order to be right with God, we have to earn it, we have to buy it, we have to prove it, we have to do all these things. And the father goes, you don't know my heart for you. My heart for you is for you to be with me, home with me. And that's taken care of now. And I can tell your heart wants to be with me and not just use me. And so if you're following along, to restore this son, the father pays a great price. To restore this son, the father pays a great price. And so what we see here is a God who does not treat us as our sons sins deserve. Psalm 103 talks about that. But then also notice that he pays a great price. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says this. These, these words are so powerful. We have it there. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So did it cost the father to love his son? Who suffered more, the father or the son? I believe the Bible shows us is the father suffered the most. And so it, I hope you'll see that this is what makes this story so amazing to me. If you're following along, notice this. There's a third son in the story who shows the father's love. I started by saying that Jesus said a man had two sons, but there's a third son, and it's the one telling the story. I love this. Uh, years ago, uh, a man named Samuel Chadwick rose to preach on this same passage and said, I'm going to preach on the third son in the parable of the prodigal son. Then he showed the two, the younger breaking his father's heart and the elder out of sympathy with his father's heart. Then he said, isn't there another son? Yes, there is. He is the man who was uttering the parable. He was God's son, his ideal son on the human level. He never broke God's heart with his sin, but he was so in sympathy with God's heart that he died to save sinners. This is the third son of the parable, and I'm so grateful. But I want to make sure you guys know this in our culture because nowadays, there's this idea that God loves everybody, and that means we're all right with him. That is not what it means. Notice this, what Warren Wiersbe says. 
All of this is possible because of the sacrifice of his son on the cross. No matter what some preachers and singers may claim, we are not saved by God's love. God loves the whole world, and the whole world is not saved. We are saved by God's grace, and that grace is love that has paid a price. And that is the good news, and that's what makes it so amazing. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, on the cross, Jesus Christ was stripped naked so we could be clothed in the robe of honor we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus called, my God, my God, the only time he never called God his father because at that moment, he was not being treated as a son. So you and I could be. There he paid the debt that deep down we all know we owe. He had everything the father had, but he shares it with us and brings us home at the enormous expense to himself. And when you see that, to the degree you see that, it will change the absolute motivation of your life. It will change your whole approach toward God. Now, I just want to bring this home. So as I was reading this parable and studying it, I was all of a sudden transported back to over 35 years ago when I was a youth pastor here in Springfield at Cherry Hills. And in those days, every fall, early winter, I would take the students in those days up to Lake in Illinois to a camp called Great Oaks Camp. It was a tradition that we'd had for years, even before I came. And so I remember one particular year, I was gathering with the students, and that particular year had been hard because many of the students had all kind of chosen to rebel. And yet they were still in the youth group, and they were pretty hardened, and they would usually laugh when we had a, a Bible study. And there was kind of a mocking spirit in some of the kids at that time. They were going through it, and they were actually almost encouraging, some of them were encouraging each other in this spirit. And it was hard to be their youth pastor. There were times I found myself just wanting to really give it to them, and I'd made some mistakes along the way. But this particular night, as I was reading the parable, I got to that verse in the second grade box and I started to cry. I was embarrassed a little bit because I didn't see that coming. And I tried to figure out what's going on. And afterwards, I, I realized that what was going on is that, first of all, this was my story. When I was 15, I had rebelled against God. And I had gotten far away from him. My heart had gotten so hardened that I didn't think there was any consequences. I didn't care what it did to my parents. I didn't care what it did to other people. But one day, at a place in Wisconsin, God met me. And there, I, I, he melted my heart by helping me see exactly where my life was going if I kept going. And at the same time, the miracle of my heart being affected and seeing that I, I decided to come back to him, and he gave me the grace to do that, and it, 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 it melted me. It, it did something to me. Anyway, as I'm, re as I'm reading this parable, I suddenly felt, this isn't something the Father just wants to do for me. This is something the Father wants to do for them, even though they don't appreciate it right now. He's still in the heart-melting business 
And I just found myself going, if this is how your heart feels towards us when we're rebellious and not yet repentant, you're an amazing God. And I'll never forget that. And some, some kids were affected and some kids weren't at that time. Some kids came to the Lord later. All I want to say is this, God still wants us to know this is real. So let me just conclude by how do we share a heart that beats with God? Because this whole series, what we're doing is we're learning how to share God's heart for the one. And so first of all, you and I can never share something we don't have. So here's the first line. I can't experience the father's kiss until I come to him. You know, the father wanted to kiss the son even when he was a far distant country. But the son could never experience that until he came to his senses and came back to the father. And when he did, that's when he experienced it. And friends, I believe there are some of you in this room today that if you were to experience his kiss on your head, it would, it would change the way you look at life and it would give you a way of approaching life where he's not going to listen to you say, I want to earn my way back. No, he wants to show you that his love is what anchors you, not all of your earning, earning, earning. And he wants you to know his kiss, not his condemnation. But have you experienced that? And if you've never experienced that, maybe your next move is to say, I've never experienced that. I've gone to church all my life. This is just words. Would you help me know you? Would you help me see myself in your story, Jesus? Thank you for what you did to make this story possible. The second thing is this. Rediscovering God's heart means seeing my one's story in Jesus' story. Rediscovering God's heart means seeing my one's story in Jesus' story. It means I want to pass it on. I realize that God's heart is so big, it's bigger than just for me. It's bigger for people I know that may not yet know him yet, that may not have any interest in him yet, but he cares. And he is a God who runs towards people that turn to him. And what a great thing. I was thinking about the history of our church. Some of you know that our church is 116 years old. So it was about 38 years ago I first met Cherry Hills, and I, I was told by some of the people that had been part of the church for a long time that their favorite hymn was, To God Be the Glory. And I was thinking about those words, To God Be the Glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us, his son, who yield his life as an atonement for sin to open the life gate that all may come in. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. And I thought, I want our church to still be about giving God the glory and still proclaiming this good news that you too can come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and you can give him glory, and you can live with a different purpose. I'm so glad for his heart. Now, I told you this is a parable of two sons that Jesus tells so the word that's in verse 25, do you notice the next word if you're reading at least the New International Version? Meanwhile. So the story's not over. If you didn't see yourself in this part of the story, wait till next week when we look at the next part of the story. Maybe you'll see yourself in the other son. Would you pray with me as we get ready for communion? Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.